We had been doing Infants on Thrones for a couple of years when Brother Jake, Jake Frost, called me up one day and he said, Glenn, have you read this book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt? And I hadn't heard of it. He's like, you got to read this. We got to do an episode about it. <laughs> the good old days. 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 This is Infants on Thrones. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. As I have loved you, love one another. Your own personal Jesus. That's not fair. Not fair. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. You are no longer black or brown or yellow or red. You are now green. Do you understand? Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bone by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer All for one and one for all Take second best, put me to the test Things on your chest, you need to confess I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver Shame, shame Reach out and touch faith. Pornographic or erotic pictures are worse than filthy or polluted food. Reach out and touch faith. faith. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode. About a year ago, a friend recommended Jonathan Haidt's 2012 book on moral psychology, The Righteous Mind. And when I got around to actually reading it, I was blown away by how much insight it gave me on how all of us approach issues of morality, the way we do, and why. Anyway, after I finished reading, I recommended it to Glenn and Heather, and then they eventually read it and felt similarly, so we decided that it would be fun to read through the book's introduction to give an overview of what's in it and what we liked about it. We're planning on doing some follow-up episodes using this book as a reference material, and, and I'd highly recommend picking up a copy and reading it in the meantime if you're into that sort of thing. But that's later on. For now, I hope you enjoy our conversation into the moral foundations that make up each of our own personal Jesus. Feeling unknown Jesus. Jesus. Flesh and bones by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Okay, I have a quick insert. Can we um, can we do this just tiny mini smackdown before we get to tonight's meat and potatoes topic? Okay. There. Okay. So Sister Dalton, who I believe is in the uh, General Young Women's Presidency, I, I believe so. I could be is wrong. Is her name right. Louise Dalton? Uh, her name is Sister Dalton. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Is she from Is she from California? Do you know anything? But the reason The reason I ask is because my dad's really good friends with 
the Daltons, and I know he's become like oh. a general authority, and so I'm wondering if this is his wife because I've met them and, and stuff. But anyway, yeah. oh, so you're trying to name drop, but I don't know. Her no, name I'm not name drop. I'm just I'm trying to provide context <laughs> in my own brain. <laughs> right. So she gave an address at University of Utah. And she's talking about a trip last month to New York City where she and her husband found themselves driving through the city during the Women's March. Mm. And she says, we were in a cab and as I watched those women marching and yelling and, should I say, behaving anything but ladylike Mm. and using language that was very unbefitting of Daughters of God, Sister Dalton said, as I watched all of that take place, my heart just sunk. And I, she should have said sank. And I thought to myself, what would happen if all those women were marching and calling to the world for a return to virtue? And then goes on to talk about chastity. Well, actually. To to, to make women uh, virtuous again. That could be her slogan. Like instead of make America great again, make women virtuous again. That would be awesome. You know what? It's ironic because a lot of women were marching because they want a more virtuous society where mm. pussy grabbing actually isn't considered yeah. in their best interest. And where virtues are you know, actually virtues. Right. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, Jake, I cut you off. Well, I was going to say, well, actually, they were... If Mansplaining. No, oh, well, actually, oh, gotcha. If were more interested in the virtues of God, then they wouldn't really have to worry. I mean, you can learn more about the study of the gospel. About You can learn more about human behavior from the study of the gospel than you can from the study about human behavior. That comes from a guy who was a seminary teacher for like 40 years. Wow. So, there we go. Pretty, pretty ironclad. Yeah. Can't beat that. No, I yeah, felt it. Yeah, it's like... Just just be more ladylike. Just don't swear. And then you'll realize that rigid patriarchy is really the way to go. And put a little lipstick on. on the rigid. Put a little lipstick on. Yep. Yeah. All right. That's all I had to say. Okay. Thank you. Jake, you're the one who introduced me to this right. book. This is back to September when you came up. And unfortunately, Erica couldn't make it up that weekend. And we were walking through the... Um, Great Falls National Park, you, me, and my husband, Kent, and you were telling us about these incredibly disturbing scenarios, such as the incest one and how everyone has this aversion to the incest, but then then they try to come up with post hoc justifications for why they have this repulsion or repugnance. Um, And even if you refute all of their arguments, they still end up saying... Yeah, I just don't like it. Yeah, it Unless they're icky. extremely liberal, and then they say, oh, I guess it's okay to screw your chicken before you eat it. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, so I, I finally did make it through this book. Starting in September, I finally finished this month. So it took me a while because I just couldn't get into the first part. But then I really quite enjoyed the second part. And I enjoyed the third part because it was driving me crazy. So. Did you, did you did you like traditionally read it or did you uh, cheat read it with an audiobook like I do? Oh, audiobook. Okay, yeah. See, and I've probably I've I've listened to the audiobook all the way through once. I've listened to different parts of it, some parts maybe five or six times. But I, th- this is one that like I want to I, I want to just like have it in the background and just. <laughs> Like, I, I right. want to absorb yes. all of this by osmosis because, you know, you, you said, Jake, that you think that 
Heather and I are better at internalizing it than you do, and I, mm-hmm. I think you're you're probably giving me more credit than I I deserve. I I don't like I want to, but I'm not quite sure that I really still get everything that that's in here. And I think that's why when we tried to have this conversation back in October, November, whenever it was, when we had Michael on, it just was kind of all over the place it was like a hot mess and it got tied in with the trump stuff and i I think really lost the 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 point of trying to understand this this book and the message in it um so i i don't know like i'm 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 trying and i think i understand the first part with the elephant and the rider better than the second part with the different emotional taste buds in the brain is that the second part yeah, foundations of morality. The foundations of morality, yeah, and, mm. and, the, and the triggers and, and those kinds of things. Um, but uh, it's just, it, it really has changed the way that I see the world. It changes the way that I see me. It, it, it like makes me second guess things that I've done with the podcast because sure, me you too. Know, like, because I don't, I don't want to be creating the echo chambers and you know like all of the ridiculing and mocking and things that I do that turn people off I don't want to do that you know that like push people away until the only ones that are left are the ones that just totally completely see things exactly the way that you do and then you never really learn anything from anybody else you're just always back slapping and validating each other and that was one of the things I hated about being in the church is how everything was like you, you, you can't can't see a message in the church that isn't like validating Mormonism and then validating yourself as a result of it. So to, to, to think I'm just doing that with, with the podcast, with, with mockery and, and all these other things is, yeah, it's the, it, it's, it's changed the way that I approach things. Cause, I, Cause one of the frustrations I had with the book was how do you, how do you actually get anybody like to change their mind? You know, when you have disagreements with people and then when I went back and listened to it a second time, at least that section of it, I went, oh, he does talk about that. And there are ways and strategies. And, you know, he, he references yes. Dale Carnegie and other things like that. And I'm like, okay, I didn't really catch that the first time. So I think there's a lot in this book um, that I just want to keep going back over and over to absorb. Okay, I'm going to start. I'm, I'm going to start on. I'm going I'm to start with the first paragraph. Can we all get along? Fuck you, Jake. Fuck you, Jake. <laughs> fuck you, fuck, fuck you, Jake. Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> that appeal was made famous on May 1st, 1992 by Rodney King, a black man who had been be- beaten nearly to death by four Los Angeles police officers a year earlier. The entire nation had seen the videotape of the beating, so when a jury, fa- jury failed to convict the officers, their acquittal triggered a widespread <clears throat> widespread outrage and six days of rioting in Los Angeles. Fifty-three people were killed and more than 7,000 buildings were torched. Much of the mayhem was carried live. News cameras tracked the action from helicopters circling overhead. After a particularly horrific act of violence against a white truck driver, King was moved to make his appeal for peace. Do you guys remember this? Well, yeah. I'm from the documentary. I, mean, I remember. Yeah, I was it, was in the, it was in that document. Go ahead. What, Heather? I remember I was at a debate tournament during that in Cedar oh, City, Utah. Wait, now, yep. now, now, so, so the, the appeal, it gives the date here, May 1st, 1992, and I was on my mission then um, when when was was that when the riot was was in 1992? Yeah, because like when I got back from my mission 
in early 93, and I went to work in Los Angeles as a, a Japanese tour guide for about nine months. And I, and I know the, the riots had already happened at that point, and mm-hmm. a lot of the Japanese people I'd take around were terrified. You know, they, they, they wanted to see mm-hmm. sites, you know, and you could still see some of the, the, the buildings that had been burnt down or windows that had been smashed. That doesn't make any sense. Why would there still be broken windows? I don't know. I've got a faulty memory of it. But, um, yeah, anyway, so... I'm just trying to put this into context. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So who, who's who's next? I'll go, I'll go next. First paragraph. Okay. King's appeal is now so overused that it's become cultural kitsch, a catchphrase more often said for laughs than a serious plea for mutual understanding. I therefore hesitated to use King's words as the opening line of this book, but I decided to go ahead for two reasons. The first is because most Americans nowadays are asking King's question not about race relations, but about political relations and the collapse of cooperation across party lines. Many Americans feel as though the nightly news from Washington is being sent to us from helicopters circling over the city delivering dispatches from the war zone. And he, he wrote this when? He, he wrote this like four years ago? Yeah, I think it came. I think it was published in 2011 or 2012. It may have been 2010. Okay, but I mean, what he just said seems so relevant to today. Oh, yep. oh yeah. you know, like the, the the can we all get along? And it just seems like there's so many more groups that are are just you know, and and he'll talk about it in here. But they're so self righteous, right? And and that's part of my concern with like the infants, or listeners, or exmos, or whatever that we get self righteous in these certain ideals and and stop listening to other people and not not interested in getting along or understanding anybody else, but just yeah. validating ourselves, always looking for validation in anything that doesn't validate you, like you attack, right? Because it is a threat. Yeah. Anyway, right. And I, 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 I yes, I, I think that this is just. The content of this book is is you know particularly poignant in the modern age, the modern political age. But like in every aspect of our lives, I mean, I think that this is something that we can moral foundations theory is something that can be helpful in understanding why people react the way they do and why you do. Well, and and especially uh, like family members that are divided by religious differences, you know, which yes, may, maybe a few people in our audience have experienced that. <laughs> You know, the, the, perhaps right. The things in here, um, I think, can help um, mend relationships, but it means sacrificing something. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll leave that as a teaser, maybe. Right, and then uh, so just to skip ahead, where he talks about how. Um, people are bound together by their beliefs. Unity, you know, when you used to have the Sunday school lessons on unity and people would say, now does unity mean everybody thinks the same? And people have to say, no, it means they just get along. But truly, it's easiest to be unified with people who believe the same as you. That's absolutely true for marriages. The ones who have the same uh, political views and religious views have a much higher rate of staying together. It's true for families. It's true for communities. But now, because of the internet and globalization, you can always find a group of people who believe exactly as you do, even if you have to Skype with them from hundreds and thousands of miles away. <laughs> but but as he goes on to say, like the second reason I decided to open this book with an overused phrase is because King followed it up with something lovely, something rarely quoted. As he stumbled through his television interview, fighting back tears and often repeating himself, he found these words, please, we can get along here. We all can get along. I mean, 
we're all stuck here for a while. Let's try to work it out. And that's the truth that we're all facing now is that we are in the same country with the same federal government. And even though you can have your enclaves of people who believe all the exact same things as you do, we're all one nation. And, you know, let's try to work it out. But I kind of want to make this more about religious differences. Well, but the subtitle sure. of the book, right, is is why good people are divided by politics and religion. So, right. And, and And I think... There's other things besides politics and religion. I think you could throw culture in there. Um, right. Th- it's, it's any kind of ideology that you feel a certain righteousness or, or that defines you. And Like sports fandom. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Like as, as a folklorist, we used to talk about these as folk groups, you know, that they're, they're mm-hmm. bound together by their traditions. And that includes beliefs, includes things that they say, things that they dress. You know, all, it's culture. And so, yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a broadly appealing, or it has a wide, wide appeal. Anyway. All right. Why don't you finish that off, Heather? This book is about why it's so hard for us to get along. We are indeed all stuck here for a while, so let's at least do what we can to understand why we're so easily divided into hostile groups, each one certain of its righteousness. Yeah. All right. People who devote their lives to studying something often come to believe that the object of their fascination is the key to understanding everything. Books have been published in recent years on the transformative role in human humative history. I, I just made up a word, <laughs> and it's right. It's right. Well, it's, it's like human. It's yeah. humative. Humanesque. <laughs> human uh, human history played by cooking, mothering, war, even salt. This is one of those books. I study, Jonathan Haidt, studies moral psychology, and I'm going to make the case that morality is the extraordinary human capacity that made civilization possible. I don't mean to imply that cooking, mothering, war, and salt were not also necessary, but in this book, I'm going to take you on a tour of human nature and history from the perspective of moral psychology. By the end of this tour, I hope to have given you a new way to think about the two most important, vexing, and divisive topics in human life, politics and religion. Etiquette books tell us not to discuss these these topics in polite company, but I say go ahead. Politics and religion are both expressions of our underlying moral psychology, and in an understanding of that psychology – and an understanding of that psychology can help to bring people together. My whole my goal in this book is to drain some of the heat, anger, and divisiveness out of these topics and replace them with awe, wonder, and curiosity. We wait, are wait. downright lucky. Go ahead. Oh, you just got to pause there. Like that's I, that's probably my favorite sentence. I'm probably not in the entire book, but at least in this introductory section, because it's like I feel that. Don't don't you feel that the 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 heat anger and divisiveness that's that's out there because of the differences in politics and religion and to be able to actually replace that with awe wonder and curiosity that like that's an awesome goal to strive for for me i think i mean, yes but uh, i mean i i think that that's a wonderful theoretical goal to, to pursue. But I think that's where right. you're like, struggling. Isn't that where you're, you, you, you talked about your struggles, Jake? Well, I mean, that, that is a struggle because I mean, we could say, I mean, and, and I, I think that it's important that this conversation take place to help our 
for, for us and our listeners to kind of go through the mental exercise of like, let's see really from a, from a moral foundations theory in what ways, like h- how does our disaffection from Mormonism affect those around us? But like ultimately, like, am I really going to be in awe of the fact that like they believe in the book of Abraham? Like, Probably not. I mean, I don't know. But I like so maybe I'm getting too down into the weeds of it. But there's like at some point where the the awe kind of exists in this kind of don't ask, don't tell kind of nether region of that's really interesting that you think that <laughs> I, I can see why you do. And Glenn, whoa, whoa, whoa. didn't you tell me like you read the book and instead of having hope that some, you could maybe reason people out of their, I don't know, that you would be able to talk to them, that you came away instead of, with, of awe, wonder and curiosity, feeling uh, despair, disillusionment mm-hmm. and apathy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, and I think, I, I think that, you, you you said something, Jake, like at the tail end of that, that was almost like a throwaway comment. I can't remember what it was now, but like, oh, I can see why you would say that. I think it was something like that. I, I think that it's, you know, you're talking about understanding, but then mm-hmm. the next step is acceptance. And I, I think that's that that's where multiple readings of this book helped me out. And, and it's still a very theoretical thing. It's not something that I'm able to apply very well, but I can set it right. as, a, as a goal and an, an ideal to strive for and you know, recalibrate my own values and go, oh, yeah, th- this is a value that I want to hold or I want to strive for, that I can, I can see that people disagreeing with me or seeing things that I think are nuts is a normal thing. You know, and yes. they're not they're yes. not wrong for doing it. You know, even though it feels like that from my perspective. You know, if I could right. step back and look and go, this is a normal thing. And he talks about this in here that that people that are that become so stridently attached to their own sense of righteousness, it, it isn't some kind of a, a flaw or a bug in society that we have to eradicate in order to to get this great, wonderful, rational utopia. That it's actually really natural and important, and kind of the secret of to our success of evolution. Um, you know, yeah. getting to this point, and so if I can, if I can accept that, and and start to to force myself to see it that way, you know, and that might be what I have to do. Right, um, right. Then I, I think it can, you know, meet his goal. The, his goal in this book is to drain some of the heat, energy, and divisiveness out of these things and, and so we can replace them with awe, wonder, and curiosity so that instead of going, man, I'm so pissed off that you don't see it the way that I see it, whatever issue you want to talk about, it's like, huh, I wonder why you're so um, uh, attached to that. That's interesting that, that this is your perspective. I wonder what's behind it. You know, there, there's got to right. be something here to understand and then accept. Yeah, like the Elaine Dalton thing like that we started off with, not throw you under the bus, Heather, but like yeah, I could totally see. I mean, of course she didn't think that. I mean, of course she thought that 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 the uh, women's march was something that violated the norms of. Yeah, you know, conservative. And, right, and and now now we've gone down that path where I'm where I'm like, is doing the podcast in conflict with my new value system? Right. Or, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Like, or or like, maybe the way that we've done it, and like, okay, I'm I'm just going to become even more of a hypocrite than I ever was before with this. Right. Thank you, Jonathan. Hyde. Now I know. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um. 
where are we? Are you we are downright lucky. Next? Yeah, go for it. We are downright lucky. I don't see it. Sorry. Okay, I'll, I'll do it. We're downright lucky that we evolved this complex moral psychology that allows our species to burst or that allowed our species to burst out of the forest and savannas and into the delights and comforts and extraordinary peacefulness, he, he uses a lot of three patterns, I really like it, of modern <laughs> societies in just a few thousand years. My hope is that this book will make conversations about morality, politics, and religion, ding, 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 more common, more civil, and more fun, ding, 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 ding even in mixed <laughs> company. My hope is that it will help us to get along. So... And I say these things in the name. In the name. Like, right. <laughs> of who? Yeah. All right. Born to be righteous is the next header. Born to be yeah. righteous. Is it, my, is it me? Who is it? I think, I think it's you, Heather. All right. I could have titled this book The Moral Mind to convey the sense that the human mind is designed to do morality just as it's designed to do language, sexuality, music, and many other things described in popular books reporting the latest scientific findings. But I chose the title The Righteous Mind to convey the sense that human nature is not just intrinsically moral, it's also intrinsically moralistic, critical, and judgmental. Right. I'm not going to do that every time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to no. you're going to burn out your vocal cords, right? Um, the word that, righteous. Go ahead. <clears throat> the dictionary defines right. <laughs> Webster's dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> um, righteous, righteous, uh, and righteousness comes from the old Norse. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, comes from the old Norse word retvis and the old English word rightvis, which both mean which uh, both sounds of like you mean, were saying sit wit backwards. Yeah, <laughs> sitter rightvis. Okay, rightvis. Both of which mean just I uh, just upright virtuous. This meaning has been carried into the modern English word righteous and righteousness, although nowadays these words have strong religious connotations because they are usually used to translate the Hebrew word tzedek. Tzedek. Okay. All right. So this part is not really t- playing to my strengths. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you never learned Klingon. Yes. I'm sorry. I do have an incredibly furrowed brow, though. Okay. <laughs> Is a common word in the Hebrew Bible, often used to describe people who act in accordance with God's wishes. God's witches. God damn it! But it is also an attribute of God and of God's judgment of people, which is often harsh but always thought to be just. Any comments on that? Mm, No. No. All right. The linkage of righteousness and judgmentalism is captured in some modern definitions of righteous, such as arising from an outraged sense of justice, morality, or fair play, end quote. The link also appears in the term self-righteous, which means, quote, convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others, narrowly moralistic and intolerant, end quote. That sounds familiar. I mean, like, we've all run into that, right? And we'd all be quick to say, oh, that's other people but not me. Right. But we'd probably be wrong. I want to show you that an obsession with righteousness leading inevitably to self-righteousness is the normal human condition. This is what I was referring to earlier. It's a, it's a feature of our evolutionary design, not a bug or an error. See, I even used that exact word. 
mm. that crept into minds that would otherwise be objective and rational. So I guess Jonathan Heights already brainwashed me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's already implanted. Or you thought of it first and he stole it. No, that didn't happen. Oh, come on. Although, here's a tangent for you. Mm. Years and years and years and years and years ago, I had this great idea for uh, a, a commercial for uh, Energizer battery. You remember the Energizer bunny? Like, yes. I, I, I thought, oh, what would be awesome is if, like, you've got some Star Wars thing and then all of a sudden, um, you know, the Energizer bunny's like flying in the Millennium Falcon and this, this image of Princess Leia goes, help me, Energizer bunny. You're my only hope. Help me, Energizer Bunny. You know, because I, I just liked the way that that sound and rolled off the tongue. Right. And, the, and I created this whole idea for a commercial. Okay, five months after I had this idea and I told uh, people about it, I saw it on TV. It happened. It wasn't exactly Aww. the way that I saw it, but they used, like, where, where uh, and, and I guess the punchline of, of what I thought was that the, the lightsaber runs out. Of the other person, oh, the right. Energizer Bunny is powered by the Energizer battery, so his lightsaber doesn't run out, and so he he wins right. and you know does the thing. But they, so that part they used. So maybe I did think of the Righteous Mind before Jonathan Hyde. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, who would have thought of of uh, Star Wars and batteries? Help me Energizer, but they didn't use the Help Me Energizer Bunny. You're my only hope. Yeah, that would have been great. That. And like it goes out, it's like and then yeah. The, Death Star yeah, it like flickers, because, and they have to replace the yeah, batteries. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's and then, good. And then she's like in three D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Then it's VR. <sighs> well, I actually do have something to say about the sentence, though. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fine. If when you're done with the Energizer button. Okay, and then and, and uh, the tangent, we come right back to the track. Right, right. You on know, by. my. Uh, my audio's having all sorts of trouble. Are you guys having? Are you hearing weirdness, or is it just on my end? You also have delays. I don't. Okay. I don't hear any sounds that I would associate with your end. But okay. um, I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see if I make it through. This. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. What was my point again? Okay. So. The, the self-righteousness, judgmental attitudes, criticism, or right, that's all a feature of our evolutionary design, not a bug or an error. I think he makes a good case for that. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a necessary feature or that it's something that we cannot have grown out of because, you know, like like a craving for sweets is a feature of our evolutionary design, Um you know, where we have those receptors in our brain that respond every time you, you know, eat a banana and you have something sweet, you get that dopamine hit or whatever it is that makes you want to eat another banana because those are calorie dense foods. And that was great for you when you're in the plains or in the jungle or whatever. Right. Um, but now we're in, you know, American society when our, um, our problem is obesity, not starvation as much then that, evolutionary feature of the craving for sweets is something that we have evolved past or or has outlived its usefulness. So although you can recognize that self-righteousness and and judgmentalism, you can understand that that's natural. You don't have to accept it as the way things are always going to be or some feature of yourself and others that you should just become resigned to without ever having to try to address. Yeah, I don't know. I like, I, 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 I had the same. Th- 
thought, and then I like started battling against that thought, and I think the battle against that thought in my head won, because uh, what what's the what what's the um, story for evolution about the the tiger or the wolf that attacks somebody around a campfire? There's something like I I, I saw something once where they said you know like you've got a group of people that are sitting around a campfire, cavemen, whatever, and the ones that hear a, a wolf and are afraid and and run for cover. Uh, survive and the ones that don't die, and, and so then the the genetic propensity for fear gets passed on, and and you know the other one doesn't. You know, it's, it's something. There, there's some analogy that's out there like like that. So in in the case of um, an obsession with righteousness, what what if? Here's a terrifying thought. <laughs> what if the people that are really obsessed with righteousness and and the reason for the righteousness is because it binds them together in really tight social groups and there's there's strength and there's power in those social groups and those people in those social groups reproduce more than people that are ostracized and are outside of the 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 social groups or maybe it's not even about uh production maybe it's about war and death and uh you know things like um genocide or you know something like that that the it's the people that actually feel that sense of self-righteousness that are the ones that survive, whereas the more, what we would think of as possibly being more enlightened and intellectual and rational are the ones that are ostracized. And so that trait well, doesn't really get passed down. That's, that's, a, that's a point that he makes in the book as well when he says, like when you look at the, the when you look at like the righteous, quote unquote righteous mentality, like those with the most... Basically, like the most enlightened uh, populations in the world are the most inefficient at taking um, resources and producing offspring with them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that the, if you look at like places that have low, uh, that have like high rates of of atheism and things like that, they have lower birth rates. Mm. And Which as people why. become more educated, they have lower birth rates. So, like, of course, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I think that's a terrifying thought, but it, it's probably true. Right. If you want to be really depressed, you just have to look at population demographics as projected over the next 50 to 100 years to see how the world is going to be completely overrun by Muslims and still some parts of Christianity and that secularists are, even if they continue to... Um, to bring in more people, they people become secular. They're just not breeding enough to keep up, or they're going to fall so far behind. Which is why people like John Hamer ought to be at the sperm bank every other day, yes. donating because he has, to my knowledge, no offspring. And who is better qualified to pass on their genes than John Hamer? He, he may be a little depleted, though. Every other day, you think? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's just come out of there in 10 years like a husk. He's blown away <laughs> the wind. You know, that luscious mane should live on. I agree. I, I agree. I saw a meme on Facebook today that it was, I think it was like a Sam Harris thing. And there was a a picture of like a sun up in the sky and then like these people in ice cubes melting underneath it. And it said something something about how the 
you know, basically the, the, the brilliance of rationality will always win the, you know, like I, I've got to find it cause it was worded much better than I'm going to summarize it. Um, but I, I think that, I, I think it's very possible that, that memes like that. Uh, and let me, I did want to. Brother Jan, I want to be a guy. I want to be helping. I did want to say, (laughs) although I think that it is a feature that has been that is selected for um, Mm. by social pressures, uh, the self righteousness. I'm talking about on an individual level. It doesn't mean so, so. Yes, so everybody has an elephant. Got it. That doesn't mean that you can't ever talk back to the elephant or that you have no rider or that people can't change. And I'm, I'm living proof of that. Sure. Yeah, but what really changed, the thing is... But, but, but so, I, I, would, I would say if we looked at you or anybody else that went through a faith crisis, it was driven first by an emotional disgust. Or, or yeah, you know, we there, there were some things, in it, and, and we now use our rationality to, to post hoc explain why and we think oh we're rational creatures when we're really we we were just as elephantly oh you just said that no i i I think we're yeah we're just getting ahead to part one but i i totally agree that we should talk about that i found the meme by the way bad ideas however sacred cannot survive the company of good ones forever unless they out procreate the good ones right and like maybe that's that's just this this really nice self-validating um, it makes our elephants feel good. Right. <laughs> when we think things like that are like, oh, good, we've validated ourselves again, whether it's true or not. And what evidence is there that it's true? I don't know. I, I like that, though. I like that we threw in a quote from Elder Sam yeah. Samuel H. Harris. Yeah. <laughs> Samuel H. Harris. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, 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 go to, let's go to the part one, part two, part three. Or did I Oh, we didn't ahead? finish this. Um, okay. Sorry. Uh, Am I who is it? Go for it. All right. Our righteous minds made it possible for human beings, but no other animals, to produce large cooperative groups, tribes, and nations, ding, uh, without the glue of kinship. But at the same time, our righteous minds guarantee that our cooperative groups will always be cursed with moralistic strife. By moralistic Some degree strife. of conflict yeah. among groups may even be necessary for the health and development of any society. When I was a teenager, I wished for world peace, but now I yearn for a world in which competing ideologies are kept in balance. Systems of accountability, <clears throat> systems of accountability keep us all from getting away with too much, and fewer people believe that righteous ends justify violent means. Not a very romantic wish, but one that we might actually achieve. Yeah, he should not give that as his answer in the evening gown competition. That's true. He's not just, taking just home go the, for world the crown. Peace. Yes. World He's not peace. taking home the tiara with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. What lies ahead? This book has three parts, which you can think of as three separate books, except that each one depends on the one before it, so you have to read them all. Like each Star Wars. Part, <laughs> yes. Each part presents one major principle of moral psychology. Part one is about the first principle, intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. 
which I think was my main takeaway from this whole book. Right. Moral intuitions arise automatically and almost instantaneously long before a moral reasoning has a chance to get started. And those first intuitions tend to drive our later reasoning. If you think that moral reasoning is something we do to figure out the truth, you'll be constantly frustrated by how foolish, biased, and illogical people become when they disagree with you. And, and to pause yeah. here, I really am disappointed that it didn't work out for Randy to join the conversation tonight or for us to do it tomorrow night because I can't hear things like this without thinking about Randy. I know, yeah. It, but, but again, <laughs> like I got, I'm, I'm sure I am just like that in my own way. But, right. like, I, yeah, I, I think about Randy when I read this book a lot. <laughs> I'm sure that he'll feel flattered to hear that. <laughs> I also think about him when I watch Children's Hospital, and I hear him laughing in my head. So I think we're good. Okay. All right. Yeah. But if you think about moral reasoning as a skill we humans evolve to further our social agendas, to justify our own actions, and to defend the teams we belong to then things will make a lot more sense and you will all feel much more cynical about humankind. Right. And you, <laughs> and you won't think that people who don't think the way that you do just don't have truth-seeking brains. brains. Right. They're just not interested well, in a, truth. It's like, yeah, it's like a, <laughs> That's why I think about right. Like moral, re- moral reasoning is like getting dropped in the middle of a chess game. Okay. And you're just like, oh. I, Wizard okay, chess? So I, I'm white. And I'm halfway through this game, and I just have to play the best that I can right now to hopefully try and win. Right. But, like, you don't get to set the board, basically. Like, Right. I, I remember thinking when I was re- very religious. I don't play chess, by the way, so I don't know anything about it. Yeah, so I, I didn't quite understand didn't your sense. analogy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jake just said he was white. Okay. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I remember thinking when I was very religious that people who disagreed with me, people who were secular, were definitely just using motivated reasoning. That I never really believed that they um, that they actually believed something until they had a good reason to. And I remember uh, two things. One of them was um, we read the book um, Anne Hersey Lee's uh, autobiography Infidel in a book group and she goes from being um, Muslim to becoming an atheist. And I remember saying in our book club discussion that I saw that coming all along and she just did it because she wanted to fornicate and you could tell because she was reading these romance novels when she was a teenager. And so she just had to (laughs) give up God so that she could justify her her wanting to um, sleep around. And I believed that too. And I believe on my mission, um, the, one of the former branch presidents in Simferopol said one of his friends had left the church and he was talking about these things he found out about Mormonism. And that's why he decided he wanted to leave. And I was like, Oh no, no, I'm sure he just wanted to sin. I don't know what it is, but you ask him, you'll find out. So he did like talk to him about it and find out that the guy and his wife had started drinking again. And he was like, you are right, Sister Craw. They just wanted to drink again. That's what it is. It can't be that they actually believed any of this. So even though I'm the one who's always crying about, no, Elder Nelson, or no, brethren, stop calling me names and saying that I'm lazy and that I just wanted to sin and all the rest of it. No, I really wanted the church to be true. And I did everything I could to make it true. um, And I just was confronted with what I found to be a 
a weight of evidence that I couldn't argue my way back from. Now I, I sort of wonder, I, I look at myself and I say, all right, what were my motivations to, did, did I have motivations that led me to want to believe that the church wasn't true? Yeah, you had a, a truth-seeking brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you see, it, it, this is kind of where it gets into that weird limbo area of like, okay, people believe things for reasons other than rationality, but there are things that are, like, actually true. You know, like, there there are some things that, like, where you can, like, verify something and something can be true outside of your, you know, your biases. Like, not everything is just a Rorschach test for you to, like, just project your biases onto. But, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, like, most of the time, that's exactly what most situations are. Finish the, the, the next two sentences, Heather, because I think, I think right. that, that speaks to what you're saying. Okay. Right. So um, keep your eye on the intuitions and don't take people's moral arguments at face value. They're mostly post hoc constructions made up on the fly, crafted to advance one or more strategic objectives. So, so like to take that and to apply it to what you just said, um, the the moral argument would be they just they, they left the church because they want to sin right, right. or or, or and, and and that's used against you now um and you're wondering what your intuitions were like what is it that led you to this place does, does that fit no what i mean is i thought that uh, reason led me out of the church and now i'm wondering was it the elephant that led, led me out of the church and the moral reasoning was something that i created post hoc to justify my leaving yeah and i i guess it's probably clear i've totally drinked this Kool-Aid i totally drinked it <laughs> you've nice. I, I, I i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't choose between drunk or drank and so i just went with the absolutely right. absurd yeah. Right. But Get them all. yeah. So I, I mean, like I'm, I'm convinced that what Jonathan Haidt's talking about here is right. So I kind of take it as a given and I may be wrong here, but I take it as a given that it wasn't reason that led you out of the church. It was your emotional reactions to things and that, that led you out of the church. And then reason was kind of the, it, that paved the path for you to walk on. But but it was those emotions that gave you the, the motivation to walk it or to, to go that direction. And maybe well, you're paving it in reverse, actually, um, as you've well, already I, walked. We're going to talk about the central metaphor here, which is the rider and the elephant. So the elephant are your yeah. intuitions and your emotions and your snap judgments and your reactions. And then there's a little rider on the elephant. Yeah. So the elephant always moves first and goes in whatever direction, yeah. but the rider can talk him out of it. I actually feel like, for me that it was the writer who corrected the elephant because man, did I totally believe in the church. And I really believe, you know, I, I had all of the moral foundations that we're going to talk about. I believed so much more in loyalty and authority and sanctity. And I, you know, the writer kind of did, I think the writer corrected it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, I, I don't know if like, it's hard to think about this because it, on some sense, it almost seems as if it's saying that, like, when when you get to this, the, the emotions drive everything. But 
I think there are some situations in which if you can kind of get into this this emotional kind of no man's land where it's not necessarily leaning in one particular direction, then it can fall different ways. Like I, I think that people that have like an emotional break with Mormonism are and they're in kind of this no man's land of like, ooh, how do I renegotiate my relationship with this institution? Do I do I go back? Do I go or or do I distance myself? I mean, I think at that point you're you the 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 weight of evidence kind of biases it toward one outcome over another. But maybe I'm just trying to use post hoc reasoning to make make it seem like to salvage whatever like uh, uh, intellectual dignity I have. Yeah, I think that's. I really do think that that's what's going on. Let mm. let let let's go on, Heather. Let we'll each take you, you do part one. I'll do part two. Jake does part, part three. One. So okay. there's yeah. So there's so, still a bit here left. Got it. So the central metaphor of these four chapters is that the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant, and the rider's job is to serve the elephant. The rider is our conscious reasoning, the stream of words and images of which we're fully aware. The elephant is the other 99% of mental processes, the ones that occur outside of our awareness, but that actually govern most of our behavior. I developed this metaphor in my last book, The Happiness Hypothesis, where I described how the rider and the elephant work together sometimes poorly as we stumble through life in search of meaning and connection. In this book, I'll use the metaphor to solve puzzles such as why it seems like everyone else is a hypocrite and why political partisans are so willing to believe outrageous lies and conspiracy theories. I'll also use the metaphor to show you how you can better persuade people who seem unresponsive to reason. Yeah. So, did, I, oh, go ahead. I'm not sure that he really did show me how to better persuade people who seem unresponsive to reason other than don't try to, the the old aphorism, don't try to reason people out of beliefs that they weren't reasoned into. Mm-hmm. And, and that, 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 that's, you know, you described my apathy, apathy when I, and discouragement when I first read it, you know, what I, what I expressed to you, that's how I felt then too. But then when I went back and I listened to it again, when he talks about that Del Carnegie piece, he's talking. He, he talks about ways to appeal to people's sense of emotion and to speak to them on a common level, and that that it takes time. You know, like we we think we think oh, if something makes sense, and I'm putting that in air quotes, something makes sense to us, then it should just make sense to everybody because there's like a common rationality and reason, and two plus two is always four, so. Of course, if I've reasoned this out in my brain, anybody else should come to this conclusion and come to it right now. But, but that there's this emotional block in people that you can't just, I've explained it to you, so you got it, right? No, they, they, their emotions have to be aligned with that reasoning and, and rationality. And moving the elephant piece of this, the emotions, you, you, have, to, you have to really develop trust with the person. And, and not come at them where they're immediately defensive and they're not going to hear what you're... Because that's, that's an emotional defensive response. That, and and th- this is why I say I've questioned what I've done with the podcast and like all, all the, the mocking and the, the, the humor and things. Like it's great for the in-group and we're, we're able to say, oh, look at them outside. They're all stupid. But if I really want to reach out to somebody who's a them on the outside, I've already killed my credibility with them like i i I have to create so much work for for them emotionally to not feel a sense of repulsion to me because i've created that in them 
Yes, but this podcast is for your in-group, right? Sure, I mean, sure. he's going to talk about that in the third part, right. that what we're doing is creating community and that, that actually has its value in the same way that religion has its value. He it, would say the same thing, I think. Yeah, it, it does. But then when I'm like sitting down to have a conversation with my dad um, or somebody who's not an audience member of the podcast, like in my personal life, I feel like I've I've kind of closed myself off and put myself in this little bubble bubble where it's hard to relate to people outside of it now, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I don't like that. I don't, that's not what I want, you know. Um, but I, I, and I forgot why we actually got on <laughs> to this tangent. But I, I I I wanted to talk about something that he says later on in the in the book when he's talking about infants, not us, but children who before they can even speak and reason, they recognize uh, just from observing people around them, uh, you know, like there were experiments with, with puppets, right? Um, where like one puppet was being mean to another puppet and then the, the infant was given the option of which one to choose to play with. And yeah. they would almost always play with the one that was the nice one. And so that they right. just had this intuitive understanding of harm, and, and, you know, like that's the beginning of, of build, developing a, a moral uh, psychology. And that, that what that does is that kind of justifies this idea of an elephant or that these emotions are making the choices for us. So the, 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 these kids, these little children, they can't rationally think. They can't communicate. If you ask them, why did you choose this one from the other, you know, what reason would they give? They can't. But they're still making a, a, a choice, and it's based on their emotional judgment about harm uh, in, in this case. So I, I, it's just really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking here, how many people who believe, well, what a huge change there's been in public attitude toward homosexuality yeah. and how quickly that happened. Yeah. Now, did it, did it happen because there were really good arguments made about it? Did it happen right. because a lot of people got together over Thanksgiving and said, well, actually, studies show that yeah. uh, homosexuals can also be good parents. No, it happened because it was because people got to know homosexuals even just in the media, but more people came out. People realized that their good friends that they care about were gay and got to know them as human beings and lost some of the disgust or the worry that was naturally triggered from their upbringing, which we're going to talk about more in the second part. Um, and that's how that's how they came to change. It wasn't because you had like great arguments or terrific studies that changed public opinion. Yeah. That helped, but really it was the coming it, out movement where just it was like coming out just movement. just be just tell everybody you're gay. But but I I I think the, the the role that, you know, like Will and Grace always gets mentioned modern family, you know, when I I think television shows like that went a long way to change the way that people feel about homosexuals. So yeah. the elephant changed. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, exactly. So it is possible. I'm just trying to be hopeful here, people. Right, right. Yeah, no, no, it, it, yeah, and it, and it is, but it takes, it takes time and it takes that emotional appeal and, and, and to get to a place where you feel safe and not threatened. And, and I think sure. um, in, in the yeah. church, one, one of the, the things that 
is, is pretty horrible that the church keeps doing is demonizing homosexuality. And that, that, that will be an impediment to people feeling okay, you know, like feeling comfortable with. So they're, they, they promote this sense of disgust and repulsion towards homosexuality that is going to keep the elephant going in that direction. You know, and it, and it's when people start to to lose that, and this may have been something that happened with you, Heather. I don't know, where you go. Oh wait, I don't feel what the church is trying to make me feel on this, and then you got this cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. and it and you know emotionally you start going in a different direction, and then you're explaining, oh well, here's why I did it, but it, but it was really mm-hmm. those, those yeah, that feelings, could well be, you know, um, right. The 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 other part because because the there's the study about the the infants and the puppets that was right in the same area. I think you mentioned earlier the, the incest example where they would, mm-hmm. you know, so we're not talking about children anymore. We're talking about educated adults. And oftentimes I, I think, I, I don't remember who they said, if it was liberal or conservative or if that even mattered, but they would give the scenario of a, a brother and sister who decided to sleep with each other. And then they created all these different variations of the story to address different rational problems that people would have. Like, um, nobody ever knew about it. Um, it was something that was private. It was consensual. They used birth control. Um, you know, and, and, and that it didn't really matter what, exam- what rational argument they gave, there was always that feeling of ickiness. And people would say, no, it's still wrong. And it was maybe like 60% to 40%, so it wasn't overwhelming. But, but then what they did, because this was a, a question on a computer screen, right? And with, with some parts of the group, they wouldn't allow them to answer immediately after reading this scenario. They would make them wait for like two minutes to, to think about it a little bit more. And by giving people more time to, to dwell on it, the, the answer started changing a little bit. And, and it, it, didn't, it wasn't like a 180 reversal, but it was uh, more people would say, oh, I guess it's okay. I guess it's not as bad or as icky as that. Because they had to take some time to get over that emotional response before that rational part of their brain could kick in and and process the information i thought that was interesting too but i I, yeah and i think that i mean it didn't matter that it was liberal conservative because i think that that a a big part of that study was saying that like the weird countries or the weird populations um were the ones that were most likely to be like well I can fine. Like it, it really bothers me, but what I. What do you can't mean by weird? You can't do it. Uh, Western, uh, what is educated, oh, industrialized? Educated. Right, right. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm glad I asked that question. Then. Rich and democratic, right? Because <laughs> you don't mean weird in the traditional sense of the word weird. Right. No, you mean I, it as I mean, an, acronym. an acronym. We don't mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but that was interesting too, because yeah. people have only been weird, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic for the last little slice of human history. That's something that developed and it develops with this certain culture of giving up a couple of those cornerstones or a few of those pillars of what he's calling um, moral foundations. Mm -hmm. And so that they don't value things like sanctity as much. They're not as repulsed by uh, sexual... um, I I don't want to call it deviance. (laughs) What do you call incest? So... Taboo. They're, they're taboos. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's a good one for it. So they're not as repulsed by t- taboos anymore. But does that mean that things like industrialization and education are an antidote to 
um, to moral taboos and religious superstitions? Because that might be the case. Say that know. one more time. I, I don't I don't remember him suggesting Either? that like the the weird people are more like like are, are superior in any way to non weird people. But but I don't I'm not remembering what he said about that. Well, he doesn't think they're superior at all. He used, he he in fact thinks they're inferior because he used to be weird and now he's become superior because he has all his taste receptors. Right. Yeah, yeah, instead of the two, it's so, like the so five, he, right? Yeah, he like tips his hand there like now I've become right. more enlightened because I I um fire on all six cylinders instead right. of just the three that I used to when I was weird. Right. But if you look at what is entailed by that acronym and what weird means. It means people who are educated and they, does that mean the more we educate the world, the more weird they will become, the less they will value those three, um, other moral foundations that conservatives tend to value more than liberals do possibly. So it may be that education makes people value sanctity and authority and loyalty less. Well, I mean, uh, that that definitely seems to be a vein of um, that. That definitely seems to be um, a, a common narrative among ex Mormons, where like this kind of shedding of like, oh, I don't have to listen to authority, you know, and like this idea of like things being sacred. Like, I'm going to take off my garments. I'm going to stop. I, I'm going to drink alcohol. I'm going to drink coffee. You know, like all of these are issues of sanctity in the context of Mormonism. So like, I, if I think that like, that's, that is something that I think we, I think we need to put a pin in this discussion until we've talked about the, yeah, what's in part really two, right. because Guys, we're, we're talking about I, these six taste, moral taste receptors, but our audience doesn't know what we're sure. talking about. Mm. Okay. I'm going to have to drop off the call and come back on. Cause I'm getting so much distortion and then things will just cut out. Jake, you want to take part two? Yes. Part two is about the second principle of moral psychology, which is that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. The central metaphor of these four chapters is that the righteous mind is like a tongue with six taste receptors. Secular Western Western moralities are like cuisines that try to activate just one or two of these receptors, either concerns about harm or suffering or concerns about fairness and injustice. But people have so many other powerful moral intuitions, such as those related to liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. I'll explain where these six takes receptors, receptors come from, how they form the basis of the world's most uh, many moral cuisines, and why politicians on the right have a built-in advantage when it comes to cooking meals that voters like. Yeah. And, and this was... I would just like... <laughs> okay. Go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go. Um, I would just like to say that you remember in like fourth grade when you were taught that there were different areas of your tongue that tasted sour and sweet and salty and bitter, um, that that has been debunked, that it was debunked at least 10 years ago. And science has shown that there are five basic tastes, but they're distributed across your tongue more or less equally. Yet, my friend, who is now in culinary school, was still taught that BS about the different areas of your tongue just this year in her program that she's paying money to. And I just think I want the world to know 
you can taste sour all over your tongue. Now you know. Well, dozens and dozens of people in the world know, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think that this section of the book is really, like it seems like a simple metaphor, but it's, it's actually, for me, it was very complicated and still is, like try, trying to wrap my head around it. So I, I, like I still can't remember what all of these six moral taste receptors are. I don't quite know how to apply them as as easily as like I do the the elephant and rider metaphor. So, do, do, is it worth talking about what what the six are and kind of exploring Absolutely. that a little bit? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to do is like the second part of this, but maybe we can just do that now. Let's just do it now. Yeah. So what what are Go the six receptors? Take it away, Jake. Oh shit! All so right. The, uh, the two that everybody agrees are really important are harm and fairness, the flip side being care. So harm, care, and fairness slash injustice. Mm. And both liberals and conservatives, everybody agrees that those are important pieces of morality. So, um, so but, when, when you see like a violation of harm or care, right, mm-hmm. th- then... You're going to be you, outright, morally you, Yeah, outraged. you've got like this, this, it triggers an emotional response. It, it makes the elephant move or lean in a certain direction, right? Um, right. Yes. With, with those two, um, and and the, the difference between liberals and conservatives is that the the trigger reaction is stronger for both of those two, right? And then no, it's, not I thought it, I thought it was stronger for those two, whereas um, and and really weak for the other. Uh, but, right for but, for liberals, can, yeah. Right, liberals tend to care about care and fairness. And to a a greater extent, liberty, and then to have much less concern with the other three, which are loyalty, sanctity, and authority. So loyalty, I think we all know what that is. Sanctity, this idea that there are sacred things that need to be respected, um, foods uh, that you shouldn't put in your body, um, the moral repugnance for um, sexual taboos that all goes under sort of sanctity and then authority so conservatives tend to care about all six of these about equally it's not that they don't um that they don't care about harm or they don't care about fairness they just care about loyalty and sanctity and authority just as much whereas liberals tend to really emphasize harm and fairness or care and fairness and to not be that interested in things like loyalty, sanctity, and authority. Which we have a whole episode on because we did at least that whole episode on respect, which would be about kind of loyalty and authority, um, where we liberals were all saying, yeah, respect sucks. Who cares about respect? (laughs) Who brought this thing to the party? Nobody wants to eat this. And, and you had that question earlier that I said, let's put a pin in. And, and, and I think it, it was like about the weird people, right? And, and I, 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 as you were saying it, I was thinking, I wonder if this is like a chicken and the egg thing, where if you've got someone who, for, for, for whatever reason, whether it's uh, nature or nurture, or, or you know, he has a discussion about those different kinds of things, uh, the way that, that a, a moral psychology can develop. But that the way that these six different moral taste buds develop, if you have um, a very high sensitivity to authority, 
then maybe you're less likely to go down the path of challenging authority, um, you know, which would lead you to leave leave the church and right. What we would call become educated in this in this case, right? Because we learn things outside of what our authorities are telling us. We, we question it and we challenge it um, because we don't have as high a sensitivity to like we we don't see a challenge of authority as being really this very immoral thing that we have a, a strong emotional reaction against. Whereas other people that that do wouldn't feel comfortable going down that road. And you could probably do that for each one of these six, right? Yet again, I want to say that this can change for people. I'm a good example because I used to feel much more passionately and strongly about authority. I used to grant almost blanket deference to uh, leaders of the church and to professors at college and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And then that fanaticism for authority has... Uh, has definitely decreased mm-hmm. in my moral among my moral foundations, and you know even John Height. I'm going to call him John, so it sounds like that I run in these moral psychology call circles. Johnny. And that it's I've, Johnny. I've, I've we've met before. I mean, there's a picture. There's like a two fee of us on Facebook. So, um, but you know, he well, has you were, changed. You were too. really just waiting for the moment to throw that into the conversation. Right. Right? Yes. You, like, is, you, you, all you, this has been elaborate like, pretense. Now we know why book. Heather said, let's do this podcast. You, you just want to like name, name drop, picture yeah, I, drop. Okay. Got it. I to- I totally made that up. So now it I'm going to have to Photoshop one. Was it Harvard? Was that at Harvard? <laughs> Um, <laughs> but he, he, he went the other way. So he started out with a liberal mindset where he only thought that harm and fair, he thought harm and fairness were the only legitimate moral foundations. And then he went to India and did this, and he traveled around and saw different, um, cultures who based their morality on a bunch of different pillars that he didn't think were that important. And then he came and then he changed his mind and said, Oh yeah, I guess this is all legit too. Cause people actually strongly believe in it. And that actually, that part of this chapter really bothered me. Mm. Because he's like he's saying, yeah, I went to India and you know I ate a bunch of spicy food and I saw that these women were living in a patriarchal society where their roles were limited and and no liberals were there to tell me that it was wrong. So I started to think that it was just okay, and then I came away cha- a changed man. And I think, oh, that's all well and good, but what if it? What if he'd ended up in a culture where for some reason um, white men were enslaved and subjugated. Do I think that he'd be just as quick to say, oh yeah, I guess this is totally legit because people are sin- sincerely believing in the society functions. I guess it must be fine. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, cause, cause, and that's, that's kind of the tension of, I don't, I, that, not, at I least don't I felt this with part this. of the book. I'm sorry. Well, I, so this, this is a tension that I felt when, when he talked about like the, the, Basically, there's this culture of individualism and kind of self-centeredness in, in American society that isn't as uh, prominent, is, is much less prominent um, in Indian society. Um, and that's something where – but at the same time, like Indian women are getting fucking raped all the time because <laughs> like it, it's all related. Like it's not – I mean, so the, like right. all of these, all of these sensibilities, all of this like deference to authority or, 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 or this, or, or notions of sanctity. I mean, they're all related to the things that create like strong family bonds and like really happy families that all live together. And also, uh, like women getting gang raped on the bus, like, like it's all related. So like that, it's so hard to pull it apart, you know? See, okay. I'm going to say like, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to, uh, 
uh, height whisper here, All right. and I'm going to fail miserably. But but when when you're um, talking about the the rape of these women and and you're really stating it very very strongly, like I think that's evidence of your care harm moral taste bud trumping, and I I, I use that word in its, its previous sense, trumping the authority subversion moral taste bud and value where to you the care harm is much more important than the authority subversion and like yeah, I can't even yeah. I can't even really hear these words coming out of my mouth because they sound so awful as if right. you know the authority subversion should be just as equal as a right. woman being raped you know like right right like yeah, yeah. Obey, yes, obeying the your, loss in the family structure I mean right. it's outweighed yeah, yeah exactly go ahead go ahead Sorry. no no I no I made I made my point I but I but, yeah, yeah. I don't. I totally agree with what you're saying. I don't know. It's, what to do it's with like, that. but it's it's. I mean, what you're saying is that um, I, I am drawing because of my upbringing and the moral foundations to which I am more drawn, kind of intrinsically or or, or intuitively, I should say. Yeah. Um, I value certain outcomes over others, and so, there are some trade-offs that I just don't see that that I deem as being totally not worth it. And one of those is the fact that, uh, like societies with more patriarchal um, family structures, tend to have much higher rates of rape and sexual violence and assault. And and so, so he also has an agenda here, and his agenda which I see, especially from the way he, especially from his, um, how he characterizes his own politics in the third part, um, is that he thinks it's best to look at all of these moral foundations as equally legitimate. Now, it's incredibly difficult to somehow find a way to stand outside of the, these moral foundations subjectively and evaluate them and ask this question of whether or not something should be a moral foundation just because it is. Just because some societies or some groups base their morality on something and they've done so for a while, does that mean that's what – is that normative? Is that what ought to be the case? And it's incredibly hard to judge that without coming into it with your own biases and saying, well, I only really care about fair and har- harm and fairness, so I don't think that sanctity really deserves a place on the platform or an equal footing, or to come into it from the other and say, no, all of these things are really legitimate too. Sanctity, you know, people's repulsion is is something that um, came to us through natural selection as a way to keep us safe and it's perfectly natural and it keeps societies together. And you know, it's hard not to end up just post hoc coming up with um, a moral reason why your particular moral foundations theory is the correct one. Well, but I think that, that what, I mean, I think that what he was arguing for wasn't, to say that all of these moral foundations are equally important, like in, in should should be weighted equally on like a policy level. I think he was saying that like they should be weighted equally as you approach interactions with the people close to you and people that you come across in day to day life. But I, but I, I think he was... made a distinction like at a policy level. Actually, the the reduction. I mean the 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 ethical philosophy of you know the past 
few centuries is something that he agrees with, with, you know, focusing at a policy level, you kind of have to focus more on the care, harm and fairness cheating, um, as opposed to things like the sanctity of degradation or loyalty betrayal, because those, you kind of have to focus on ones where the outcome, the harms and the benefits can be more quantified, easily quantified. So I definitely didn't read that part. I, yeah, I he definitely said that about. toward the end. Okay. Yeah, and but, but and I, I I don't really I I don't I, I'm not that remembering like one, that was like a one page caveat. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just saying I, I'm I'm not remembering a lot of the sections, so I'm I'm I I, I may be totally off here, but I I I didn't take away Heather or Jake that he was saying that there should be an equivalency among these five or six. Um, at all, but it's just that if you want to, and you go back to his stated goal, if you, if you want to take out this this hurt and anger and the sting of all this and replace it with awe and wonder and you know understanding, then then knowing that these six moral triggers are there and that people you know they it's not even something that people think about. Like you don't make the decision that oh this is a violation of care and it's harm, so therefore I am going to be outraged it's you feel the outrage because it's triggered that without you even okay. thinking about it without even being aware of it and so if 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 we as readers can understand that this is happening inside of people it can help us understand them better and and to your point heather that you've made several times people can change we can we can change that maybe if we understand that these mechanisms are there they're at play and and this is the reason why we're having differences uh, if we're talking about women being raped or, or you know whatever it is and there's all this outrage that we're feeling and other people aren't and we just can't get past why is there that difference there that if if we can look and understand and accept that these other things are going on empathize with them build trust and make the feelings of things less harsh and icky then over time things could change maybe I know I think you're right about that I also think that there it that there's um, something going on between the lines because first of all although this is an incredibly popular book it's not the last word in moral foundations theory I mean there are plenty of people who don't recognize one of these as part of the moral foundations or who, who would add to the list or take away from the list it isn't you know a consensus in the field that there are necessarily six moral foundations and nothing else counts and there are um, you know blurred categories all sorts of things um, but I think and maybe you're right. Maybe he's just being purely descriptive in trying to tell us what the main moral foundations are and not saying anything normative about it. But I think that even by choosing which you, what you call, what you let onto the list as a moral foundation, uh, that you're sort of smuggling into there a little bit of a normative claim that, that they're all, equally legitimate or, or that they're equally, uh, he, he certainly talks about them being equally sincerely held, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they should be. So I think that we can still, even, even though we can say, okay, now I, I better understand that my, um, whatever friends they're when, when I see this response from them, it's because they're, uh, having their loyalty trigger 
punched. That doesn't mean that I need to say, and that will always be the case. And that's just the way it is. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. And that's, and we don't even have to think about what kind of society would be the best world to live in. We just have to accept and resign ourselves to that, that fact. Yeah, I don't that, think that, that that necessarily follows. Right, and that and that's kind of the bleak interpretation of it. But I, I think the the parts that he does he does talk about in his book that I didn't quite take away the first time, and I, I don't know that I'm still completely there, is that if you understand these different tastes, then you can prepare a cuisine that will appeal to people outside of your own, you know, like, so, so if you know that you're going to be talking to a conservative audience and that the conservative audience places equal value on all five of these things, then you're going to want to craft a message that appeals to all five of those things. Whereas if it's a a more of a liberal audience, craft a message towards the two that are most, you know, and, and so as a, as a way of being a more effective communicator, that, that, that can help. And, and that's a way of bridging the, the, the gap and maybe creating those relationships where people can change. Yeah, I yes. mean, I, I kind of saw that the, the purpose of the book isn't about being effective. I mean, it's about being effective. Like an effective manipulator. Right. How, how to manipulate people to, to see things your way. <laughs> yes. How to, find, how to win friends and influence people. Don't you think they'll be reading sections of this in the missionary training center when they're telling missionaries how to approach people? I, I feel like this is going to make its way in and quickly. Oh, stop it. <laughs> you're, you're being facetious, right? No, I really think so. That, really, you know, the righteous this book? No. Yeah, well, maybe I only think that because in our ward, after the election, uh, the Sunday school teacher, the gospel doctrine teacher, sent out an email to the ward that said, now, a lot of you may be feeling a little icky about, I don't know what, and I'm not partisan in any way. I'm not a member of either party, but um, I'm going to link to this uh, YouTube pre- TED Talk by John Haight about can't we all just get along and it's all the righteous mind stuff. So, so maybe, maybe I am. Yeah. But that's somebody in a ward, not like in the MTC that's part of the church curriculum. Right. Maybe I shouldn't generalize that far. Also, you guys, this is like really incredibly painful. I'm getting so much distortion and you. So part three is about the third principle, morality binds and blinds. So the central metaphor of these four chapters is that human beings are 90% chimp and 10% bee. It's a little too cute. I don't know. This was my least favorite of the metaphors that that he gave. Um, The the central metaphor, uh, human nature was produced by natural selection, working at two levels simultaneously. Individuals compete with individuals within every group, and we are descendants of primates who excelled at that competition. This gives us the ugly side of our nature, the one that is usually featured in books about our evolutionary origins. We are indeed selfish hypocrites, so skilled at putting on a show of virtue that we fool even ourselves. But human nature was also shaped as groups competing with other groups. As Darwin said long ago, the most cohesive and cooperative groups generally beat the groups of selfish individualists, like the Jedi beating the Sith. I think, I think that's where Darwin got it. Mm, yes, yeah. Darwin's ideas about group selection fell out of favor in the 1960s, but recent discoveries are putting his ideas back into play, and the implications are profound. 
We're not always selfish hypocrites. We also have the ability, under special circumstances, to shut down our petty selves and become more like Jesus. I think is what he, I think is what he meant to say, <laughs> and become like cells in a larger body, or like bees in a hive, working together for the good of the group. These experiences are often among the most cherished of our lives, although our hivishness can blind us to other moral concerns. Our bee-like nature features, or wait, our bee-like nature facilitates altruism, heroism, war, and a fourth one here: genocide. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, and what a fourth it is. Yeah. Once you see our righteous minds as primate minds with a hivish overlay, you get a whole new perspective on morality, politics, and religion. I'll show that our higher nature, in quotes, also or allows us to be profoundly altruistic, but that altruism is mostly aimed at members of our own group, you know, so the Relief Society that makes the casseroles... It's mm-hmm. for incestuous service. Yeah. Yes. You know, which is a good thing. But mm. it is a good thing. And yeah. that was very convincing in this part of the book. Yeah. That all of that incestuous service, all of that giving back to the community, all of that altruism toward the in group is actually what made groups survive succeed. and thrive yeah. and succeed. And that it's an absolutely natural reaction and something that we're not going to get rid of just by saying, oh, you, uh, or something that we, we should act, we should ha- value a little bit because people give more to people they know. People give more to charities of their in-group. People do more for people that they're in some way connected to. And, it, and the problem is if you disconnect from those kind of communities and you don't have a community, you tend to just... Uh, lose all of your altruism and and some of your joy in life. That's called the Bob dilemma. The Bob dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yes. Bob's he talked about to, that. He's talked about that before. But what he needs to do in playing his video games is to <laughs> play an MMORPG where there are guilds yeah. so that he could have an online community where and he help could other be people in the altruistic guild. Right. other people in the guild. Maybe That's he right. do that. Yeah. In defense of Bill Maher, he is one of the very few people on my celebrity to-do list. <laughs> to-do list? <laughs> yes. You know how uh-huh. you like have a list that you have a pass for? Uh-huh. Right. So um, I have my, my geezers, my, uh, which is Bill Maher and, some, and this other guy that I'm not going to mention because somebody I actually know. And I feel like <laughs> for Bill Maher, it would... It John does not count. It's John. It's John Hay. You already Hamer. told us. <laughs> we know. <laughs> Although Hamery was on there for a while. But um, <laughs> but I just feel like as a service to... So you are really to, interested in his sperm, collecting his sperm. Apparently. I yeah. I, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And then we have the beautiful people, which is Clive Owen and Bradley Cooper, for obvious reasons. And then we have the Giants, which the entire is football Juan team? Martin Del Potro. The entire no, football only team? Only two. Okay. Juan Martin Del Potro is an Argentinian tennis player. As long as he doesn't try to say anything in English because he has the doofusiest voice and sounds so not bright. Um, so you'd be like, don't say and, my and name. Don't say my excellent, name. Excellent. Excellent ground shots. Just, yeah. And LeBron. Those are the giants. And then we have in his own separate category, Sam Harris, just because he's so articulate. I, I feel, and he just can't stop talking because like, like Bill Maher, I'm not sexually attracted to either of them, but I do feel like as long, like he, he could just convince me to do anything. I would be powerless against his, um, 
his uh, articulation. All right. Um, you can cut all of that out. But what else was I going to say about this? Uh, <laughs> wait, we're talking about Bill Maher, right? <laughs> I'm glad uh, we did this because we have really structured ourselves well. Yeah. Once you see our righteous minds as primate minds with a hivish overlay, I said that. Um, I'll show that our higher nature allows us to be profoundly altruistic. That's where we ended up. I'll show that religion, this is, this is where, I'll show that religion is probably an evolutionary adaptation for binding groups together and helping them to create communities with shared morality. And I agree with that 100%. It's not a virus or a parasite, as some scientists, the new atheists, like dreamy Sam Harris, have mm-hmm. argued in recent years. And I'll use this perspective to explain why some people are conservative, others are liberal or progressive, and still others become librarians? What? What? No, I'm just making a joke. Libertarians. People bind themselves into political teams that share moral narratives. Once they accept a particular narrative, they become blind to alternative moral worlds. Um, I think we can skip Amen. this next paragraph, probably. So anyway, it's a good book. I, I, have to, yeah. I, I did feel like this was one of the weakest parts where he takes on the new atheists and tries to show that... Well, Because what he does is say, well, religion's not a parasite, it's a communal adaptation, and religious sociality gives people a sense of belonging, it has these positive externalities. Um, But he didn't actually address very seriously the negative effects, other than like one time he brings up an example of suicide bombers who were political rather than religious, and says, hey, that can happen too, so it's not a religious thing, even though that um, is far outweighed by the religious bombers. but yeah, I mean, his point is that societies create gods to bind themselves together by shared beliefs and to enforce their social norms. I totally, I'm on board with that. But I thought his uh, his response to new, new atheists was weak, powerful weak. Yeah, and not I, because I'm seduced by Sam Harris. Yeah, I, I'm I'm predisposed to agree with him, so I, I probably should disqualify myself because it's just my elephant emotional response. I, you know, <laughs> and everyone has to disqualify themselves. Probably, for probably. Um, but yeah, I, I earlier when he talked about how um, be, like the the self righteousness isn't a, a bug in our development, I, I think he was. Uh, responding to new atheists there, and and he repeats it here when he talks about that religion isn't a virus, um, that once it's eradicated, then we'll live in this beautiful, rational utopia. Um, I I think that's a pipe dream. I I think religion is around to stay, you know, at, at least for the next several thousand years if we last that long, you know, and and what like a likely scenario when we're talking about groups competing is that very uh, dogmatic religious groups that create this really strong bond will uh, destroy their opposition. And I I think that's a historical... uh, Does does history bear that out? Is that that like the pride cycle? Because we see it in the Book of Mormon. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I think that is the danger, and I think it's a very a very real possibility. And in, in order to have any chance, secular communities need to do a much better job of community, and they have to get over themselves and they have to stop do thinking about some incestuous service. <laughs> they need to be a little more hivish. Otherwise, they'll never have the power to compete with any of the world religions. I, I think I think they have to be kinder to uh, the the people who are religious. You know, if you're gonna if you're going to win the war of ideas, you can't you can't win it by attacking the other side. You have to do it through well, let's- love and kumbaya and all these liberal ideals that are just going to be weak and destroyed by the religious zealots. <laughs> well, that's or, what we're talking about right now, or right? You can just start because, having a bunch of babies, or you, or you can ha- or you can start having a bunch of babies, or start fuck your way to the top. That's what I'm eggs. saying. Yeah, but, sure. But that's even, always even been your, my motto. Even yeah, okay. yeah. I'm ready to be done and to stop arguing anyway. So, uh, well, I, I, I thought we were going to get to Jake's point, which is how do we how do we do that? How do we talk to the other side? Um. And because the new atheists do a pretty terrible job of it by doing the exact same thing we do, which is just throwing respect out the window and paying and give, giving the giant middle finger to things like sanctity and authority. It's it's the the masturbatory, aren't we great? You know the the self congratulatory validation right. of the in group. You know that that isn't. That, that that I you know you can't say that it doesn't affect the the out group because it does it makes them hate us and not mm-hmm. listen to us yeah and yep so are we gonna try and do some of that tonight Jake do you have that. Someone to hear your prayers. Hi, Someone this is Hillary. Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Unknown and you're all alone, flesh and bone by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Take second best, put me to the test. Things on your chest, you need to confess. I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.